John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing uh, to come together, to come before your word, and to come before you and all of who you are, the reality of who you are. God, we were humbled to know you and to be known by you. Father, I thank you that you sent your son and that he would pray a prayer that we just heard read, that we would be one with you. God, what a tremendous, glorious, mysterious, powerful reality that you have called us, invited us to be one with you. Father, as we dive into your word this morning, we pray for uh, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead, your very spirit, to be at work in us, to bring dead hearts to life, to bring um, slow hearts, uh, to be quickened to your presence and aware of your work. And God, may you strengthen our faith, not just our, our intellectual assent that you uh, exist, that you would strengthen our trust in you as we come to know you better and better. I ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. How much you trust somebody is directly related to how well you know them, is it not? If you do not know somebody, you shouldn't <laughs> trust them, right? We, we, we understand that. And the, probably the greater you know somebody and the greater you've come to know their trustworthiness, the more you may trust them. So I, we could imagine some kind of uh, scale of, of situations from, from requiring the least amount of trust to a greater and greater amount of trust. I, I imagine any kind of safe environment, as long as it is a you know, relatively uh, calm situation, you probably trust most people enough to at least engage in a friendly conversation, right? That's a pretty low level of trust to be willing to look to somebody and talk to them. But if you're going to invite them to sit down for a, for a meal together, that's a little bit more intimate. And you, you want to know that you can trust somebody a little more than that. Uh, maybe a one step further would be, uh, or maybe not just one step, but you know, down, down that run, line would be uh, if you are getting in their car and they are driving, you have to have a, a level of trust. You have to know them well enough and know their driving abilities and whatever else may be going on to trust them to get in their car for them to drive. 
If it involves money, maybe that's one step further. If you're handing out your credit card or giving them a check to deliver or a cash or something, you want to trust them to know they're going to do what you ask them to do or, or do whatever the situation is. Maybe even a step beyond that, a significant step beyond that is who, who do you trust your children with? Only people that you really know and trust and people that you know that are capable and love your children, that's who you're going to leave your children with. They either ride with or stay with them for very long. Maybe even uh, the inner of inner circles are the people that you know well enough and trust well enough to share the deepest, most personal things about you. There is a very small number of people in your life probably that you would tell the deepest pains, the deepest joys, the deepest sorrows, that's a very small number of people because only a few people do you know that well. Let me ask you this. I wonder, what if one of the main reasons we don't trust God very much is that we don't know Him very well? I wonder if one of the reasons we struggle to trust God in the ups and downs of life and rely on Him is that we don't really know Him that well. Do we believe that God is actually trustworthy? Of course, everybody will say, yes, of course God can be trusted. And yet, where do we turn to for trust? Where do we, what do we rely on in hard times? Where do we look for help? Isaiah 40, verse 9 says, Go up on the mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, and say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. This fall, I want to invite you to lift up your eyes, lift up the eyes of faith, lift up your heart, and behold your God. Because I believe we are invited by the Word of God. We are invited to know God better so we can trust Him more. We're invited to know God better so that we can trust Him more. If you do not know God very well, if we do not know Him well, it is hard to trust Him. We will be limit, if we are limited to just a, a few Bible stories that we got when we were in children's church, if we know the David Goliath story, we know creation, we know the cross, and we know, you know just some, some basic things like that and some common sense, we'll trust God sometimes. <laughs> but the hard times, probably not. Probably not. And the more we trust Him, the less likely we will depend on other things to be our functional God. We will let God be God. Here's what I mean by that. If we do not know God very well, we are going to lean on something for help. We'll lean on something. It just may not be God. God certainly can and often does give us any number of good gifts, does He not? He gives us good people in our lives, a spouse, parents, children, grandkids. He puts good people in our lives. Many times he even gives us good material gifts, things like a, a job or a career or that we really enjoy, a, stat, a steady income or, or status or certain ways that we're, we have uh, things of this world. And those can all be good things. But if we take any one of those people or any one of those gifts and make them the very center of our identity, the place where we get our sense of value and worth, then we're putting a level of trust, a certain responsibility on them that they weren't built to carry. And one of the ways we know that we've done that is if that thing has gotten taken away or that thing, if you can imagine that thing being taken away, if your whole world crumbles, 
or would crumble, then you know you have put a trust on that person or that thing that they weren't built to carry. You have put a God-sized responsibility and obligation on that person or that thing, and they will eventually crumble underneath it. But if we know God better, we can put the trust in God and enjoy His gifts, not ask them to be our God. This fall, I want to help us by, by diving into God's Word and knowing God better, which means your vocabulary may want to expand just a little bit. There's some good words out there, some good Bible words, some good theology words that, that we don't employ very often because, well, they're just big or complicated. We, we can describe God in certain ways. Uh, this, on the fly, I'm realizing these are all four-letter words. These are all four good four-letter words. He's good. He's love. He's holy, right? Those are good, good four-letter words, all right? But that, if that's all we know, then it's going to be a limited knowledge we know about God. Those are good things, very core things about Him, but it's limited. God is literally unlimited. He is literally infinite, which we're going to look at next week. He is eternal. He is omnipresent. I hope you know that God is self-sufficient. God is unchanging or immutable. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is the very definition of justice. God is righteous. He is beautiful. He is omnipresent. He is glorious. God is wise and innumerable other things. And if we can dive into who God is and know Him better, we will trust Him more. So this fall, I want to invite you into this study. We're going to study the attributes of God. And this is a little bit of a break from kind of our usual regular rhythm, our regular diet here as a church. We regularly practice what we call sequential exposition of Scripture, just preaching through books of the Bible because that's how God revealed Himself. But occasionally we take breaks from that, especially to take a a theological topic like this. Every week we still will be centered in one passage of Scripture, but also zoom out and say, what does the whole Bible say about the God we see here in this one passage? So this fall, I want to do that. I want to zoom out. We won't, of course, you can't cover all the attributes of God by definition, but we're going to look at some of them. And to start us, I actually want to start with something that's not really an attribute, so I'm cheating. I already told you I'm going to study it, and I'm not going to study it today. We're going to go before that, and we're going to talk about who God is in His essence. This isn't just one thing about Him. This is His very essence, His very nature, His character, and that is that God is triune. God is the Trinity. God is a Trinity. So here's the key truth I want you to know about our triune God today. Our triune God has enjoyed loving fellowship eternally. I, I, I know this may seem like... Of course, of course God has. But I, I want you to sink in this, soak in this, marinate in this today. Our triune God has enjoyed loving fellowship etern- eternally. Whatever else we learn together about God this fall, whatever else we may, may comprehend and, and squeeze out of the scriptures this fall, I want you to delight in this truth. God is triune. Three in one. The New City Catechism says it this way. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the same substance, equal in power and glory. There is one God, and He exists in three persons. We can look back to the Old Testament and see glimpses 
of that reality, but it becomes clear to us by the time we get to the New Testament that there is a profound declaration of a unique being unlike any other religion or any other people has ever created. There has never been a, anything else like him. He is uniquely, not yet, Will. I'll get there in a little while. He is uniquely three in one. When Jesus commissioned his disciples at the end of Matthew, we read this, Matthew 28, 18, to 18 and 19. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, one name, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One being, three persons. One essence, three distinct personalities. Ephesians 3, uh, 4 that we heard a little earlier, there is one body, that's the church, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, there's Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That, that, I'm not going to preach that passage, but that's called a unity is centered in the unity of Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There is one God, and He exists in three persons. Now, before I even begin to unpack that, uh, I, I want to tell you the glorious invitation that is already, already uh, concealed within this what we've, what we've already just said. We're going to get there, but I, I just don't want you to miss this as some intellectual exercise that's just for theological, I don't know, ivory tower people or something. Okay, I want you to hear that there is an invitation just wide open for you. And it is a glorious invitation. The reason I had Elaine read from John 17 is here's, here's part of that prayer. This is Jesus on the night before he's crucified. And he's with his disciples, but he's praying to God in that chapter. And this is what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, that being the disciples right there around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. People that have come to know Jesus because of the witness of the disciples. And what does he pray for us? What's he going to pray for us? He says that they may be one. So he prays for our unity. And he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Did you track all that? I know there's lots of, Elaine stopped me beforehand. She was like, there's a lot of ins and us and me's in this passage. I'm going to have a hard time. And she did great with it. I'm going to read it one more time see if you got that. This is what Jesus is praying for me and you. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Here's what Jesus prayed. He prayed that you and me, Christians, people who believe in Jesus, would be in the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There is an invitation to a deeper love than exists anywhere else in all the universe and all of history. There is no greater love than exists between the Father and the Son. And Jesus, on the night before He is crucified for our sake, prayed for you and me and prayed that we would get to experience that love. Whew. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. And that's the invitation. That, that's what's offered to us. The Trinity is not just some intellectual exercise of trying to piece together different things that don't make sense in our heads, right? The Trinity is an attempt for us to be able to say, I see God as He is displayed in Scripture, and I see that He has invited me into a profound relationship that exists nowhere else. So it's going to hurt my head a little bit, 
and that's okay. But to the degree I can get my head around this, I'm going to delight in it. I'm going to enjoy it. Because this is a tremendous privilege and opportunity. There is an invitation here that exists nowhere else in the world. Peter words it a little bit differently. 2 Peter 1.4, he says, he prays, he's talking about the, the Christian, he says, that you may become partakers of the divine nature. You get to partake in being part of God. Not that we become God, but we get to be enter into the relationship between Father and Son by the Spirit. What an invitation. What an invitation. This glorious reality of God's perfect communion, three persons and one being, is not some abstract thing to be kicked around late at night and then discarded when you've got to do more practical things the next morning, right? It's not like that. It is a mystery, absolutely. There is a mystery to God's triunity, but it is not unknowable. It's not unknowable. Perhaps some people come to the Trinity like I come to a Rubik's Cube, right? I know some people here, the Navarro kids, the Labob kids, probably some others. They can do a, a Rubik's Cube in no time flat. I haven't seen them do it blindfolded. I'm pretty sure they're pretty close. They're good at it, right? And some people probably look at people who can talk about the Trinity and say, that's a fun trick you can do. You can use your vocabulary in a unique way that describes something that doesn't make sense to the rest of us, and that's all fun and games, but it doesn't really matter to me. I actually would like to be able to do a Rubik's Cube. I just have never had the patience to sit and figure it out. But you know what? No offense to those who can't do the Rubik's Cube like that you can do it. It doesn't like transform your life. Well, I don't know. Maybe you make money that. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's not eternally significant <laughs> whether or not you can do a Rubik's Cube. The Trinity is not like that. It's not like some kind of complex puzzle that you piece together. This is reality. This is more real than the podium I'm, I'm hitting, the chair you're sitting on. This is reality, and I'm telling you, it is a glorious, delightful, beautiful invitation to know true reality. The Trinity is an opportunity to know God. Jeremiah 9, our memory verse for the month, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It's an opportunity. God's word is an opportunity to know the one being who created all things, sustains all things, has eternally existed before all things, and will eternally exist forever. That's the opportunity. That's the invitation. God is knowable. He is understandable. Not fully comprehensible, of course. We being created are going to be less than the creator. But he has made us in such a way that we can begin to comprehend him. And it's a glorious comprehension. God has revealed himself in Scripture as the Trinity. And so we can't truly know Him unless we know Him as triune. Anybody who claims to know God and does not recognize God as Trinity does not know the one true God. They can use whatever language they want. They can call Him Father. They can call Him Jesus. They can call Him Holy Spirit. They can call Him whatever. If they do not know God as triune, they do not know the one true God. And so to be a Christian is to proclaim with the historic church for thousands of years that we believe in a triune God, three persons in one God. So let me give you the three key aspects of this doctrine. And I know right here is where you might be tempted. Just I'm just going to check out. So don't do it. Don't do it. Lunch is coming. Lunch is coming. But not yet. All right? So don't check out with me. So now, Will, I'd love for you to put up that next slide. You were, you were eager. You know, it was exciting. And so we wanted to get there. Here's the three 
key aspects of the Trinity. This isn't in your bulletin. And then after this, I'll give you three kind of areas, three places where this plays out. So here's the three key um, truths to understand the Trinity. There is one God. Number two, God is three persons. And number three, each person is fully God. So there is one God. That has been attested from the beginning of Scripture and was unique in the Old Testament in the ways that everybody around the people of Israel worshipped more than one God. And so they made this clear. We are monotheist. We believe in one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. When a person comes to Jesus and asks him about the most important commandment, thousands of years later, Jesus being the Son of God himself, who has eternally existed, he had the opportunity to rewrite whatever he wanted, because he's God. But he doesn't. He doesn't rewrite it. There is still just one God, Old Testament or New Testament. Jesus quotes the same thing, Mark 12, 29, 30. Jesus answered, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We are not polytheist. We are not tritheist. We are monotheist. There is one God, not multiple gods, just one, only one God, which means that the, the core of reality is a unity, not a plurality. So that means the, the, what the, everybody, there's this deep in our DNA, there's this longing for people to connect, to be unified. Discord, disunity feels broken. Unity feels like that's right when we're together. Where does that come from? It comes from God himself. He is one. He is completely and perfectly unified. There's one God. You with me so far? Amen. Maybe? Amen. All right. Amen. I believe in you. You can stick with me, right? All right, here we go. That was the easy one. There's one God. Here's where it gets complicated. There's three persons. Still one God, but there's three persons. This truth is, again, all the way through the Bible, but especially clear in the New Testament. And there are many places where they show up in the same verse. Jesus speaking to his disciples, this is what he says, John 14. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. You follow that? He said, I am going to the Father. The Father is going to send the Spirit. The Spirit's going to tell you all the things that I told you. Father, Son, Spirit, one verse. Second, 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of His blood. That's why Peter wrote his letter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Three persons, one God. Amber sent me something this morning. She was trying to figure out how to explain this to the kids. I felt bad for her. I was like, all right, I get to like talk for a long time, and people you know, generally pay attention. She had the like third graders and below, and she's going to teach the Trinity. So here's what she, she came across. Somebody else said, that Trinity, you could distinguish between the, the who and the what. The who and the what. So uh, to use a human, it's, analogies are always dangerous, but here we go. Uh, in my household, uh, Lois is a child. Who? Lois is what? She's a child. Who? Rufus is a dog. Who? Zed is a fish. So Lois, person. Rufus, dog. Zed, fish. You with me so far? All right. Father. That's the who. The what? He's God. Who? The son. What is he? He's God. Spirit. That's who? What is he? God. You following with me? Three who's. Yeah. One what? Three who's, one what? 
I didn't write that down. I was, I'm, here we go. All right. Praise the Lord. Three, three persons, one God. All right? One, here's why that's important. Well, there's a lot of reasons. Here's one reason it's important. One person cannot share self-giving love with himself. Right? The definition of true love, like we talk about self-love. Really, that's just like taking care of yourself. Okay? But by, by the real definition of love, two people, two entities have to exist. Or otherwise, it's something different. Love is the expression of giving oneself, caring for the other, meeting the needs of the other. That's the definition of love. Were God not a, a three, a triune being, three persons in one, he could not be love. Do you follow that? There existed a time before creation, and God was there. And if God was not three persons, he would not have been loving then. The very reality of love depends on God being three persons. If anybody denies the Trinity, they deny God as love. You can invent whatever other definition of love you want, but love is, a, is something that happens between two beings. And God the Father has eternally God loved God the Son through God the Holy Spirit. If we get rid of three persons, we get rid of love, the truest reality of love. Don't get rid of three persons. Don't get rid of it. I know you're tempted by that, but don't do it. All right. There's one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. This one, I think you can go with me. God the Father is God. 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is fully God. Jesus himself, also fully God. God the Son is God. Romans 9.5. It says to them, he's talking about the Jewish people, the Jews, belong the patriarchs from whom their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Right there, Paul says it. Christ is God. Or one of my other favorite examples, John 8. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I said to you, before Abraham was, I am. You know what he was claiming? He was saying, Yahweh, I am. That's, that's my name. And the Pharisees heard it and knew exactly what he meant. Do you know why? Because the next thing it says, So they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to kill him because he was blaspheming unless he was telling the truth. He is God, fully God. Acts 5 tells us God the Spirit is also fully God. Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of yourself, the proceeds from the land? The very next verse, he says, You have not lied to man, but to God. Same verse. You lied to, you're two, one verse after each other. You lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. He's saying this is, this is reality. God, the Holy Spirit is fully God. This is the part where Jehovah's Witness and Mormons exit from Orthodox Christianity. They do not hold to the eternality and therefore the full deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, they are not biblical Christians. They do not hold to a biblical Christianity. So many times they use a lot of words and terminology that sound a lot like Bible words because they are quoting Bible words. But they have exited from reality because if you do not hold to the eternal nature of Christ, then your sins cannot be eternally paid for. Amen. Your sins and my sins require an eternal punishment because we have sinned against an eternal God. So one of two things will happen for every single person who has ever lived. Either we will spend all of eternity paying for our sins against the eternal God, 
or we believe in the eternal God who sent His Son, the eternal Son of God, to pay for our sins. One of two people are going to pay for our sins, either us or Jesus. And if you do not believe that Jesus is eternal, that he can't pay for your sins. So Jehovah's Witness, Mormons have exited from true biblical Christianity. They can claim whatever title they want. It's not the Bible. It's not reality. It's not Trinitarian theology. I care about this. Do you know that? I care about this. This matters. Hebrews 9.12, He entered once for all, Jesus, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing and eternal redemption. Eternal. You had to be eternally redeemed. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And he has to be eternal, or else there is no forgiveness of sins. There is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. Still with me? You're doing great. Only four more hours to go. Let's go. <laughs> won't be that long. I know I may have lost you in the weeds there for a minute, but I want you, if I lost you in the weeds, I want you to come right back out to this, where we started a minute ago. Our triune God has enjoyed loving fellowship eternally. Our triune God has enjoyed a loving fellowship eternally. And if I dropped you, if I dropped you off in uh, you know, detail land there for a minute, come back to this, because this is, this is, your, this is worth taking home. Okay? I say all that about the details of, his rea- of, of who God is so that you can better grasp how awesome the invitation is to participate in this reality. My favorite description of the interpersonal relationship between the person of the Trinity is that prayer from John 17, and we get a glimpse in that prayer. And I've preached this before a couple years ago. Somebody even remembered it in a Wednesday night Bible study recently, so we, we got it. But we glimpse behind the curtain of eternity past when Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am. So that's him praying again for us, all of his, all of his disciples, all the people who believe in him. And what again, in this phrase, what does he believe, what does he pray for? He says that, uh, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. What, what, what existed before creation? God. What was he doing? He was totally happy, completely satisfied, because he had a perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. There was perfect love between Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, you love me before the foundation of the world. When there was nothing, there was love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And here's why that's really important. If you want to get down to the very core of, of how we describe God, what, what, would, you, what would you describe Him? Could you, would you call Him Creator? He, he is that. And that was the first you know, thing we have recorded that He did, right? But if the very core of Him is Creator, that would mean there has to be a creation. But He existed before creation, so that can't be the very first thing about Him. Similarly, we might, maybe the first thing when you think about God, you think of Him as this almighty judge who is the definition of right and wrong and judging you know, light from dark and the sin, from, sin from righteousness. He certainly is, is those things. He is, he is judge. He's in control. But again, that would, there would have to be something for Him to judge. So that's, 
secondary to his nature? Who is he at, at the very core before all of that? He's a father. He's a father. God the Father has eternally begotten, not created, the eternal Son of God through the Holy Spirit. God has always loved His Son. God the Father has always loved God the Son as His Son, eternally begotten. At the very foundation of reality is a family, a father who loves a son. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. And that's, that's what you're invited to. That's what it means to proclaim a triune God. Is that at the very core center of all that exists is not just some power struggle. It's not just some battle between good versus evil and who's going to get the upper hand. It's an invitation to know a heavenly father who has gone to great lengths to show you the love he has. That's the center of everything. Wow. He could have done it, any different, could have done it differently. And if God was different, it would have had to be different. Every other religion believes something different than that. Do you know that? We live, we live in a hyper-pluralistic um, world, do we not? The, the most common thing right now is we're, we're, we're all the same. We're all the same. You name your religion or no religion, really we're all just a part of the same thing, and, and you call it this and I call it that, but it's all the same. It's all many paths to the same place. No. No. Why? Because we hold to the Trinity and nobody else does. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, secularists, nobody holds to the Trinity. And we hold the Trinity so dear because it is the core of reality. It is who God has revealed Himself to be in His Word. And if we throw that out, we've thrown it all out. So is it a little bit of work to get your mind around it? Yeah, I'll, I admit it. I, I scratched my, I've preached this before and I still scratch my head a lot this week, right? It's hard. I understand. But praise God he doesn't fit in this little, you know, dumb. He is far more glorious, worth, worth our, our deepest thoughts and deepest study of his word. And when you, when you see him, oh, there's nothing better. There is nothing better. Listen, this is really good news for any number of reasons, but there is this ache in our souls that only a triune God can, can satisfy. And that's because he created us, right? One of those aches, we have this ache to belong to something. We have this ache to know somebody and be known by somebody. We are relational beings. We, we, don't, we don't do well in isolation for very long. We go crazy. That's in our DNA, that we are not meant to be isolated. We, we, we love, in, in the right way, we love applause. We love celebration. We love glory. We love a beauty. We love justice. Where do those things come from? Well, the particles of carbon combined with oxygen, and then we got... No, it comes from a relational God who is eternally the Father, who has eternally loved His Son by the Spirit and has created us. So I want to end with real three, quick, three places we see the Trinity show up so that you see where this, this 
This hits the rubber of the road of our lives. It hits the, the rubber of the road in creation. The triune God created us to share in His eternal love. This is why you were made to be the way you are. There's, that's why there's this ache in your soul to know and to be known by somebody. God created us in His image, Genesis 1.27 says. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. Why? why did he, what, did, what did that mean? Well, track, track through Genesis 1, and you keep seeing this word good. It keeps coming up. Good, 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 seven times. Then you get to Genesis 2.18, and for the first time you hear the words, not good. And I heard one pastor say it's like the record screeched, like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Sin hasn't happened yet. That's the chapter from now. What is not good? It is not good that the man should be alone. Why? Because we were created by a triune God who has eternally existed in a loving relationship, and he made us in his image. And so even with Adam had God. He had God. And God said, this isn't good. It's not done yet. It's not finished. I'm going to put somebody with him so they can begin to comprehend and see how glorious and just how beautiful a relationship is. So he puts Eve in the garden. We were created for relationship. How did he do that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form or void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. Did you hear all three persons of the Trinity there? Moses probably didn't fully understand that. But by the time we get to John, he helps us understand. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. Father, Son, and Spirit worked together in perfect unity to create humanity in his image and one of the ways that is true is that we're created for relationship we live in one of the loneliest times in history people have tracked this scientific people that i didn't write down all their numbers but i read about it and i experience it i feel it we live in a lonely time do we not we live in a world that is more connected digitally than ever before and yet is lonelier than ever we, it, it's, social media has given us this false sense of connectedness, interacting, but without the vulnerability of face-to-face. -face. Entertainment has shifted in the last just half generation from being something you would go to, like the movies, to something you would enjoy sitting alone on your couch, like watching Netflix. We used to have to go to concerts. Remember those? Now we can stream any song that's ever been recorded ever from our phone. No need to go to the concert anymore. That's social. I can do this by myself. Our architecture, we went from being primarily front porch houses to park in the garage, shut the door, walk inside, walk out to my back deck. Our culture has shifted to be, we, this individualistic desire in us shows up in all kinds of ways in our culture. We can make our public opinion known from the safety of our thumbs and just continue to contribute to the polarized society so all those people out there, I don't have to deal with them, I can just tell them what I think and then just go along to my isolated self. We are more and more polarized, more and more isolated, less and less in relationship. And that's not how we were created to be. We're created by a triune God to live in relationship with one another. That's how we were created. And we broke it. Not very long after God made it. Genesis chapter 3. And what happened? The first thing that broke? Relationships. Adam and Eve covered themselves with garments. They hid, tried to hide 
from God. They didn't want to be in relationship with anymore. The, the relationships broke. We meant to be in relationship. And yet, our triune God had a plan all along. And how did he do it? In person, face to face. He did it in the incarnation by sending his son, empowered by his spirit, to be with us. Salvation, our triune God redeems us to share his eternal love. I could read you a whole handful of scriptures. I'll just give you one. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done by, unrighteous, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of his eternal life. God the Father sent God the Son to live among us, live the perfect life, die in our place to pay the eternal debt we owe and then be resurrected by his Spirit and ascended back to the Father and that, so that he could send his Spirit on the day of Pentecost to indwell every believer. Our salvation is Trinitarian. I'll give you one more good word for the day. Our salvation, we were create, our creation was Trinitarian. Our salvation is Trinitarian. The only way you can be saved is that you believe in God the Father who sent God the Son to die for you and that your heart be changed by God the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God does not bring your dead heart to life, you can't have faith. So this is the picture, the glorious picture of the reunification of how God intended the world to be. You and I are broken people, dead, spiritually dead people. And he sends his spirit inside of our hearts to change our hearts. And it goes from being stone to flesh and begins to beat again. And when it can beat, it can believe. And we come to God through the Father, through the blood sacrifice that was paid. And we are reunified to God the Father. That's what Jesus prayed in Acts 17. May they be in us, in us. You were created in a Trinitarian way. You are saved through the, tri the, the triune power of God. And when you are saved, you can pray like somebody who believes in the Trinity. Do you know how prayer works? Same way that salvation works. You and I have no right on our own to enter into the throne room of God. That's what prayer is. You know that, right? We, we are coming before the holy, majestic throne of God. And that is somewhere sinners do not deserve to be. No way. But we come not based on our own authority, but because of Christ. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I'm starting to think that the Bible really is committed to this Trinitarian thing. Like, it keeps coming up, right? Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with their weakness, but we have one in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come based on what he has accomplished. But when I get there, I don't know what to say. I, I come before the throne room of God and I, I, I'm just stammering. You know what you say? Romans 8, 15. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
You come into the throne room of God. Not based on your righteousness, but based on what Christ has done for you. And when the Spirit of God is inside of you, and you have been brought out of slavery to sin and into God's family, you stand before the throne and you say, Father, let's pray. Father, thank you that I get to call you Father. Thank you that you have sent your Son to pay the debt I owe, to pave a way for me to come to you. Thank you, God, that you have sent your Spirit so that I can have words to say, to call you Father. Lord, who you are is a tremendous, glorious truth, is a mystery in so many ways. And yet, God, thank you that you have become comprehensible, at least enough to where we can know you truly. Father, for any who are here who are just overwhelmed, praise God. Praise God that you're overwhelming. Praise God that you are bigger than we can comprehend. But God, I pray for comfort, for strength, for clarity, and for a delight, a joy in knowing you for who you are. Father, we confess it's easy for us to kind of check our minds and just go along with popular culture's belief, descriptions of you. And so we pray for something better than that, more biblical than that. God, I, I plead that we, even this over the next few months, we would study you deeply, know you deeply, so we trust you more. Thank you that we need to call you Father. It's in your son's holy name I pray. Amen.